Let's open our Bibles, Philippians chapter 1. I'll talk real fast. Will that work? I'll talk double speed. To live is Christ. <clears throat> little review from last time because uh, it's still kind of still kind of bubbling around inside my, my brain and my heart, really, that to live is Christ. Now, Paul, he decided that he was going to live as Christ, and that for him, that's what it was, and that to rejoice was a decision no matter what happens, because to live as Christ. And two things we saw that he depended on, he, he depended on people praying for him, it said, and, and also he, he depended on the help of the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we need those things, too, to live as Christ and and as we pray for one another and as we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus helping us. And he said there that, that he prayed and he had expectation and hope and courage and, and to face everything that was ahead, but also that Christ would be exalted and magnified no matter what happened. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Someone said the source and the secret of his joy. So to know him and to walk with him, to have his life, to have that abundant life, to live as Christ, that's for us too, isn't it? To live as Christ. To die as gain. We know that that's going to be more, that's going to be better, to be with him face to face. And Paul said even that he preferred, if he had his choice, it would be better to go and be with Christ. Because that's, you know, that's better, it's far better, he said. To be with him face to face, but he says more necessary for you that, that he stayed. More necessary for other people that he stayed and, and uh, served and helped them in, in their progress and joy in the faith. That their joy, it's, he said there in uh, verse, which verse is it? In verse 26. Your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me, on account of the fact that he stayed, on account of the fact that he was still there with him, that God was using him and he was serving and he was uh, surrendered to what God would have him to do with them. And so through that, they would progress, they would grow, and they would, their joy would grow as well. It would overflow. I've been thinking a lot about that joy, and as I said last week, you know, that's really kind of what... I see the, this journey of joy through the book of Philippians should be, and, 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 and we keep that in mind as Val mentioned that Jesus, others, yourselves, that, that this joy would like be infectious, that it would catch a hold of us, and we'd kind of understand what it is. And so if joy, if it begins with Jesus and then others and yourself, uh, I, I've been thinking about it this week, well, how do you keep that focus? How do you keep Jesus first? When you're overwhelmed and, and stuff's going on and it's so easy to be just swallowed up by everything, you know, how do you keep that focus on Jesus? It, it's a decision that we make. It's a choice. And I read in, in Psalm 25, he said, My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. But the writer to the Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on who? On Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He says, for the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. F fix our eyes. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We've got to keep the right order to have joy in its proper form. 
And Jesus has got to be first. And, you know, maybe it's in the middle of the night, you know, and sometimes I'm thinking about these things in the middle of the night, if you can believe that. But it's those songs, I think, too, you know, we, we heard mentioned earlier, it's those songs that you sing in the night, too. And we haven't sang it for a while, but that song, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. It's, it's this song we sing that comes to our hearts and minds in the middle of the night when we put our focus back on Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Whatever happens. I found some quotes, and I, I did make uh, copies of this, and I want to read them to you about joy because <clears throat> we need to understand what it is that we're supposed to have, right? You know, it's not, you know, well, let me just read some of these quotes because I think they're good. And I, again, I made copies on the back for, for those of you who might be interested. This is by D.L. Moody, the, the great preacher uh, from the 1800s. He said, happiness is caused by things that happen around me. And circumstances will mar it, but joy flows right on through trouble. Joy flows on through the dark. Joy flows in the night as well as in the day. Joy flows all through persecution and opposition. It is an unceasing fountain bubbling up in the heart. A secret spring the world can't see and doesn't know anything about. The Lord gives His people perpetual joy when they walk in obedience to Him. That's joy. It's not the circumstance. It's not the things that happen around us. That's where happiness comes from. But joy is something else that, that, the, that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Helen Keller, the uh, woman that we've, we've heard of, we all have heard of her mostly, I think. Most of us have. Uh, who had many trials and many troubles in her life and and uh, overcame so many things, to, uh, but she was she was blind, and she says, "I've met so many people, empty of so empty of joy that when I clasped their frosty fingertips, it seemed as if I were shaking hands with a northeast storm." She couldn't see, but she even just touching them, she could see there was no joy there. She said, "Others there are whose hands have sunbeams in them, sunbeams in them." so that their grasp warms my heart. It may be only the clinging touch of a child's hand, but there's as much potential sunshine in it for me as there is in a loving glance for others. How about this one, Billy Sunday? How many of you heard of Bill, Billy Sunday? He was a revival preacher. He said, if you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Something just ain't right. See, I want to read one more here. Somebody named Rufus Jones. I don't know who he was, but he was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He says, true joy is not a thing of moods, not a capricious emotion tied to fluctuating experiences. It is a state and condition of the soul. It survives through pain and sorrow and, like a subterranean spring, waters the whole life. It is intimately allied and bound up with love and goodness and so is deeply rooted in the life of God. It's got to come from God. We can't, we can't get it from the stuff around us. We certainly can't get it from the world. If you watch TV, if you watch the news, you're not going to find a lot of joy there. It's got to come from God and it's got to come from deep within us. 
This is the joy that we're, we're talking about here, and it starts with Jesus. It goes on to serving others and then ourselves last. Joy. That's the kind of joy that I want. Whatever happens, joy because of Jesus, no matter what. Not because of circumstances or perfect health or perfect life. Because if that's the case, how many of you would have joy? How many of you have perfect health? I got this thing growing on my hand right here. I don't know what it is. I'm serious. There's like a knot there. How many of you have perfect, perfect life? How many of you say, I got a perfect life? If you do, if you say that, something's not right there. <laughs> it's not because of those things. It's the joy of God. The joy of God, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the joy in knowing Jesus to live as Christ. That's why he could have joy even though he was in locked up and in house arrest and he'd been through all these trials. He had joy because it didn't matter. Those things aren't what his joy was based upon, you see. Joy is found in Jesus, serving him, following him. So this is where we pick it up in verse 27, and we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and, you know, we did a little uh, uh, study the other night in, in our Wednesday night uh, Bible study and prayer. And, you know, we can look at verses, and, you know, it, for me, it's always a challenge to know, well, what, what is it that we would want to look at in these verses? You see, because you can look at verses, if we all, if we took the time, what we did then, we, we took a one verse, and we all looked at it, and then I said, now, you look at the verse, and you tell me what the message is, rather than me just telling you what the message is, because I, I had three or four, you know, messages that I could see in that one verse, and so I said, well, you pick it out, and you know, there was like, there was over 10 or 15, I don't, we didn't keep track of how many. So the challenge for me is always, well, what is it that, that is for me to bring out in this particular time? Because we can't reach it all, right? We can't study every little part of, of every verse. We, you know, that's why it took so long to go through Matthew, because there's so much there. And I try, you, know, you want to cover everything. You want to look at everything, but you can't always do that. And so for me, there are two or three things in here as we come out that, uh, that really kind of stood out and that, that um, I felt were important. So let's just read these these verses starting in verse 27, he says, whatever happens, those words stood out to me because I see that's what, what Paul's focus had been. No matter what happens, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one faith, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That word there where it says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. It's actually a term that has a, like a, a political kind of uh, a connotation. And, and literally what it means is to behave as a citizen. Behave as a citizen. He says, whatever happens, behave as a citizen. Now, was he talking about being a citizen of Rome? Because the people in Philippi were, they were like, they, were, they had all the rights of being citizens of Rome. It was like a little, uh, uh, I can't remember what they called it, but like a little uh, adjunct of Rome. But is that what, they, what Paul was talking about? No, he wasn't. He was talking about being a citizen of where? 
of heaven. Because later in the book of Philippians, he says that in chapter 3, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a citizenship, but it's not here. But he says, no matter what happens in this life, to behave like a citizen of heaven. Behave like a citizen of heaven. That's kind of a tall order, isn't it? That's a lot to ask. Does does God ask us to do something that He doesn't empower us to do? No, never. So He wants you and I to think about that, and and that's a a little something to think about here. Now, now, when I'm at my job, when uh, I'm at the grocery store, when I am dealing with people and working on, you know, uh, the the guy at the, the mechanic at the shop, or when I... You know, I'm in school or wherever I might be at home with my wife or with my children or with my husband. Behave as a citizen of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of another place. We just live here temporarily. What does that look like for you, I wonder? What does that look like for me to behave? Can people look at us and say, yeah, something about it's from a different place. Well, they say that about me anyway. He says, I don't know where he's coming from. You know, what, what planet is he from? Well, there's good of that. You know, you've heard the saying, you know, to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And, and, and you know, sometimes that's just a cop out in my mind. Because what the truth is, is that we're so earthly minded, the other side of that, we're no heavenly good. And, and we use that as just an excuse for living like the world. But I think most of us, myself included, need to be much more heavenly-minded so that we could be earthly good. The truth of it is, if we were more heavenly-minded, we would be more earthly good, and we would have more of an impact if we, if we were more behaving like citizens of heaven. Behaving like citizens of heaven. To be who we are and to live what we believe. I read this poem how do you pronounce that word? Poem? Poem. Poem? Depends on where you're from, right? If you're from the south, it's poem. He says, and it's an unknown, uh, unknown who the author is, he says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? What's the gospel according to you? We have Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, and so forth. What is the gospel according to you, to me, according to me? What are people reading? You know, that neighbor of mine. Uh, what is he reading when I, when I talk with him? What, what kind of a message is he getting? Is he, is he getting a fragrance of, of, of heaven? Or is it just all kind of like the world? To live as Christ, be who we are, and to live what we believe. Behave as a citizen of heaven. That's a, that's a point, I think. We could stop there, but I still have a few more minutes, so I'm going to go on. Because I've got three or four more other things that I felt were important in this particular passage. The second one is found in the last part of that. He says that, that they would stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That they would stand firm in one spirit, but not just to stand firm for its, for its own sake, 
We do need to stand firm in the, in the gospel and in the spirit of Jesus Christ, but he says here that we would contend for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is under attack. I don't know if you know that in our country today. The gospel was under attack then. There's, the enemy has always been wanting to attack the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that trusting in him and only trusting in him, not works, but trusting in him will give us eternal life. The gospel has always been under attack. Faith in God, the Bible's been taken out of the schools. We have, you know, we've had this huge you know, thing going on in Cranston about a simple thing that it's a prayer and it doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. Because somebody might dare to say something like Heavenly Father and the word Amen. The faith is under attack. The faith of the gospel is under attack. And, and for our lives and for the, what we teach, that, that we would continue to stand up for what's true, for the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God. Even, I hate to say it, even within the church, that, that, that there's been over the last 10 years even uh, this wandering away from the word of God to, to just what feels good or what kind of makes sense to, to men. To people. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, he said, The Spirit clearly says in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's pretty strong language. We leave the faith, abandon the faith for, for uh, and another place talks about just fables, to teach fables. That's why Jude says, that he, he's writing, and he says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. We've got to hold on with all we've got to the foundations of the faith. The foundations, the, the, the foundations, you know, that not, I'm not talking about, you know, secondary points that we might have some room to disagree on, but on the, on the, the central points of the, you know, the Bible being the Word of God, number one, that Jesus was God the Son, the deity of Jesus Christ, that is. You know, that God is the creator, that, that it's not evolution, that God is the creator. You know, these, these basic foundational things that that we know that the Bible teaches. In Psalm 11, it says, When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Or what will the righteous do when these foundations are being attacked and destroyed all around us? I, I happen to be one of those people who believe that our country was founded on biblical foundations. That things have changed. It doesn't mean they were perfect back then, but, but uh, to the best of their ability, those those men that were putting together these things, were, they were founded on basic uh, Christian uh, uh, principles, biblical principles. Go back and do some history. Search through and see how many of them, in fact, were actually pastors that were putting their signatures to some of those documents. Interesting thing, though, in that verse I just read about the foundations being destroyed, the very next verse, 
this is encouraging to me because it's the first, the first verse in verse 3 said, Psalm 11, verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 4 says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. No matter what people are doing, it says the Lord is on his throne. He's in his temple. Ultimately, we know that he's still in charge. Ultimately, no matter what people do, he looks down and, and you know, it's like, but how much better it is that if, if, if we're, if we're uh, following, contending for the faith, even here in Rhode Island and, and, and what's going on around us. Stand firm and hold to the teachings. Verse 28, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. He says, don't be afraid to contend for the faith. Don't be afraid to stand firm and and hold your ground when it comes to what the Word of God teaches. That doesn't mean they're all going to accept it and believe it, but but you and I need to know that we we believe, we trust what God's Word says. That's That's what it says. We don't have to convince people. We just have to speak what's right and true. Let God work with people, their reactions, their responses. This word of being frightened, uh, it, it actually was used about, about horses when if they got startled and they you know, stampeded off. He says, don't be, you know, don't be startled into running off by these people who oppose you. There, there are plenty of people who will oppose you and I today. There are people that opposed Paul and the gospel back then, and things really have not changed. The enemy has not changed his tactics from then till now. David Guzik said this, when our spiritual enemies fail to make us afraid, they have failed completely because they really have no other weapon than fear and intimidation. The what does it say about the, the devil? He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and yet he's got no teeth, but yet this fear and intimidation is what he's trying to use to get us to just be quiet, just to stop speaking. But I believe, and you find it over and over in the Bible, I believe God wants us to be courageous and speak the truth. Be courageous. Moses told the people of Israel, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified. You find those words used over and over. They were were quoted to Joshua as well and to so many others. But, but through that, he says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. When, when you and I hold on to our faith, when we are courageous and we just speak the truth, when we hold on and we contend for the faith of the gospel, the faith of the Word of God that's, that's uh, shown to us in the Word of God. Verse 29, he says, For it has been granted, for it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. That's an interesting verse right there, isn't it? Let's just take that one out. Let's just just do away with that one. 
you know, again, I've, I've mentioned this idea of being positive, but not on the positive confession bandwagon. Being an optimist and, and finding truth in the gospel and truth in what God wants to do in us, but yet not, uh, you know, just getting rid of the stuff that we don't like. One of the founding fathers, I hate to say this, Thomas Jefferson was one of those kind of guys, though. The things he didn't like, he actually had his own Bible that he kind of edited, and he took, he took the, the scriptures and he just took out everything that he didn't like. And then he had his own little edited copy. God forbid that we would ever do something like that. For him, it was anything miraculous, anything that you know, that, that talked about miraculous or that was the power of God. It was, so for him, it was more like a, a humanistic thing that he held on to. But here, when we take this out, we want to say, well, that, you know, we're just going to take that part out because I don't believe there should be any suffering for the Christian. Where did that come from? That's, that's a very humanistic kind of thing, I think. Because it's all about me and how I feel and what I think and what, what is going to make me happy. But that's, you know, just read the verse there. You got the message. You can tell me the message here, right? It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. The interesting thing is this word granted, it, it, it means it's a, it's a form of the word grace. It's a gift of grace. It's been given. It's a gift of grace. It's been given to you. A gift of grace, not only to believe. We know, we believe that. We say, yeah, it's, you know, I'm saved by grace through faith, and that's the gift of God, right? God gave me even the faith and the grace by grace to believe. But the grace of God given to me to suffer for him? Let's just skip that part. Let's just move on, shall we? Let's just go to the next uh, chapter and, you know, encouragement, positive things. I've heard one of the, you know, most famous preachers in the country say, I'm never going to mention the word sin. I'm never going to mention the word, you know, devil. I'm never going to mention the word hell. I'm just going to take out anything in, in that's negative and just, you know, try to make you feel happy and, and be positive. Well, you know, I... Believe in being happy and joyful. But, 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 but Paul says here that, you know, it's a lot bigger than, than just that. That's what, that's what those quotes were, were talking about. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's the, it's the journey of joy. It's the epistle of joy. But yet he says here that it's, it's a gift of grace that you, that you would believe in him, but also you would suffer for him. This is part of the deal. This is part of the deal. This is part of the deal. How many of you have seen the movie Shadowlands? Some of you have seen that movie. Very powerful movie. It's about C.S. the life of C.S. Lewis. And, and uh, I think one of the most powerful movies that I have ever seen. But, but one of the premises for C.S. Lewis is, is this, that you know, that was part of the deal for him. To get to have joy in, in this relationship he had with his wife, but also the suffering because his wife then died from cancer. And she says, you know, the joy and the pain, it's part of the deal. They go together. And, and, and for you and I here in this life, it's not going to be that way in, 
when we face the gain, when we're in heaven, when we're with him, when we're actually home to the place where our citizen, uh, citizenship is. But, but here there's something that's, that's part of this life. It's not if we're going to face it, but, but it's how we react to it, how we deal with it. God uses suffering in our lives. You know that, right? I just heard a little snippet about that on the radio, even coming in this morning, that, that, you know, where do things grow the most? In that down in the valley lands where there's a lot of, uh, you know, rich soil down there. It's not up on the... The further you go up on the mountaintop, guess what? The less things grow up there, right? That you come and you get to the point where even trees can't grow. You're, you're past the, the tree line and you go up there, finally you get up to the way up, way, way up the top and... And it's cool to go up there, but not a lot grows up there. So God uses suffering in our lives, even suffering you know, that, that we face of all different kinds. And He uses it in our lives. And part of the, it's part of this thing of the potter that's fashioning the clay, right? Oh, Pastor, you're, you're, you know, you're bringing a downer on me. You want me to be in joy, but, but, but now you're talking about suffering and... and and all that stuff, I'm going to get up and leave right now. No, the, the, the secret is the joy in the midst of all that life has to offer, all that God allows in our lives. That's the secret that Paul had, to live as Christ no matter what, whatever happens. You remember those words in, in verse 27? Whatever happens, not only when things are going good. This word for suffering, and I, I got a bunch of word studies, so I, and I just get them out of the Strong's Concordance, and, and any of you can get them there too. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't pretend to be one, but, but there's some interesting things you can get just looking at some of these words. And the, the word for suffering here, it, it's, it means to experience a sensation or impression, usually painful. To suffer, to experience something usually painful. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. You, you, you feel it. It's a passion, a suffering, a vexation. Oh, no, I don't want to hear about that either. Let's talk about pain for a minute. There is a disease, it's very rare, where you feel no pain. How many of you have heard of it? It's a, a disease where uh, there's a couple different names for it, and they're very long names, and I, and I would mispronounce them if I even had them written down, but I don't, but you can, you can find them easily enough. But where, where, you, where you don't feel any pain, and uh, MSNBC's on their website uh, had this Heading, wish you could feel no pain, think again. It says, life without pain, without the pain signal, is dangerous. This report on the rare disorder shows. Their experience illustrates that pain is an important warning of injury, disease, or danger that signals people to save themselves from further injury. And life without that signal, the report shows, is dangerous. It's not safe to have no pain. And the parents of these children that, that have have it, that you know, they're 
they're, you know, they're besides themselves, you know, because the child cannot feel pain. So if the child falls and breaks something or runs into or they, they bite through their own tongues, they can't feel the pain of it. The disease of leprosy, very similar kind of thing happens in the extremities where they've discovered that it's not the leprosy that causes them to lose their, their extremities. That's not the problem. The problem is that they, they can't feel what's going on there. And so when they hurt themselves, you know, it, it, they just don't feel it. And, and, and through a period of time, you know, they hurt themselves so many times, they lose those extremities. But sad to say, in our society, and I think especially in the last, say, 20 or 30 years, we, we've been taught that you can't undergo anything negative or painful. What do you do if you experience anything negative or painful? What do you do? You tell me what we've been taught. Take a pill. Change something. Get out of there. Go do something else. We've got drugs now. Legal and illegal. But, uh, you know, I, I, I heard recently through what's happened with, you know, Whitney Houston and that, that many, many more people are now dying by legal prescription drugs than by all the illegal drugs put together. So it's, it's like accepted, you see. Well, you know, if you're feeling some kind of pain, some kind of sensation that's painful, we're just going to give you something and make that go away. But how do you know that God isn't using that in your life to teach you something, to cause you to grow in some area? I think we need to rethink what, what we've been taught, what we've been told. You know, when the settlers were out on the prairie, they knew they were going to face tough stuff and it was going to be hard. And, and, but they, they had said, well, that's part of the deal. If I'm going to go out and, and, and explore, I'm going to go out and, and get new, you know, a whole new life. Now, you know, the cost, count the cost. It's, there's a cost involved in, in everything in this life. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. And be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what Jesus said. We're reading what Paul said, but Jesus said, don't, you know, you're blessed. Paul said it's a gift of grace when you're suffering, especially when it's because of the gospel of Jesus, because of your faith in Jesus. But he says, great your reward in heaven. When we get home, it's not going to be here. It's not all going to be here. I wish it was. You know, somebody asked me, uh, well, how's it going? And I had to say, well, uh, I had to stop and think, well, let me get my list out. You know, things that, you know, in order of the, this kind of trial, and you just kind of, I had, this, I had this mental list. I didn't actually write it down. Maybe it's a good idea to write it down sometimes, but I didn't want anybody to see that I was having trials and troubles and suffering and pain and, and struggling with all these different things. But I just said, well, you know how that is when people ask you, how's it going? You go, well, not bad. 
and I'm a pretty good liar too. You know, because when they ask you that, really, it's just a greeting. It, they don't really want to know. It's just like, how's it going? And you start to tell them, and you go, wait a minute, I just want to know. I just want to say hi. That's all. I, just, I don't really want to know. I got my own problems. I don't need yours. Jesus said, I've told you these things, John 16, 33. We used to sing it as a chorus way back in the 70s. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble or tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How many of you have been around long enough to remember that chorus? Anybody? There's like quite a few of you. Maybe we'll learn it. Very simple, but you know what? I'll never forget that verse because it's that song that we've been talking about. He says, I promise you that there's going to be pressure. That particular word means pressure. But behave as citizens of heaven, even in suffering, because he has overcome the world. Let's turn. I got a few passages I want to look at before we close. First Peter chapter 4. I got a few more minutes. I think you've been seeing the different messages that I See coming out of here, behave, behave as a citizen, citizen of heaven, contend for the faith, stand firm, understand that it's a gift of grace to believe and to suffer for Him. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised. Oh, now Peter's getting in on it too. This is too much. First Paul, then Jesus, actually different order. First Jesus, then Paul. And now Peter's going to hammer on us too. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I think that's what some teachers, some false teachers are teaching. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. There's that word joy. So that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There's some kind of suffering we bring on ourselves for doing wrong things, but he's saying here, suffering for just being, just being. A Christian. Romans 5. Let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Back to two chapters. Romans 5 says also that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. But 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 21, he says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Oh, Peter, please. We're talking about to live as Christ, to following the example of Christ. And Jesus suffered. Did he not suffer? And we say, I don't want any suffering. I can't deal with it. I can't. No, you can. Jesus left us his example. I don't know if you know this, but this is the verse where, you know, the, the thing, what would Jesus do? And this 
it didn't come out of this verse. It came out of a book that was written about this verse called In His Steps. How many of you have read that book? Some of you read it. It's a classic. It's called In His Steps, and, and that's what they did. They decided to do. What would Jesus do in that book? And that's where the WWJD came from. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example you should follow in his steps. How about chapter 4, verse 1 in 1 Peter? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Whoa. We could just go off on that one for an hour, I think. Arm yourselves. I think part of what we're studying today is this is part of the arming ourselves to know that, hey, you know what? Suffering is not necessarily so bad. It's part of life. It's part of the faith. It's part of what's been given to us. Paul said in Romans, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. They're not even worth comparing. But you and I, sometimes we speak and act a little bit differently. Finally, let's look at that last verse and finish there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 30. Since you saw, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Basically, Paul saying this is that he was there, he understood. He wasn't telling them to do something he didn't know anything about. He'd been there. You saw, you, you, you heard that I had the same struggle, that, that, that this is part of what it means to be a follower, to live as Christ, to find the joy of following Jesus Christ, that there is believing in Him, but there is also the suffering. But when you think about it, how could you have the suffering without the believing part? You see, He's given us both. And that's when you really need to believe when you're going through the suffering, when you're going through the trial and the trouble. When things are all fine and wonderful, what, you, know, you don't even hardly think about Jesus. See, it brings us back to that. It brings us back to the place of trusting Him. Peter, another place he said, you know, that, he says, Rejoice, though now for a little while you, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed and then he says these words, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious what? Joy. An inexpressible and glorious joy. You're filled with that. Not because there's no suffering. He says this suffering stuff, is getting, you know, it's real. It happens, but it's only for a short while. It's only temporary. Whatever happens, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Whatever happens, the ups and the downs and, and the, the stuff that we face in this life, you know, the beginning of joy is keeping our eyes on Jesus. The joy of the Lord is our strength in the suffering, in the trials. But you know what? You and I have a very bright future. You have a very, very bright future. But it may not be even seen here in this world to live as Christ, to die as gain. Let's pray together, shall we?